I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're going to be reading Deuteronomy chapters 24 through 27. The first four verses of chapter 24 concern marriage. Verse 1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. When well, I here is a provision under the Mosaic law that restricts a man from remarrying a woman after his divorce from her, and after her subsequent marriage to another man. It would appear that this law is designed to protect the second marriage from emotions which may be potentially revived between the original marriage partners. This is a bridge-burning law that says you can't go back. So what might this uncleanness of verse 1 involve? I mean, after all, the realization that a Hebrew woman wasn't a virgin after one marries her is dealt with in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 to 30. And the penalty for this unfaithfulness was, as we saw in that chapter, stoning to death. Well, no divorce required there. Likewise, death by stoning is the outcome specified for adultery in Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 to 31. Well, however, there are at least a couple of situations that come to mind where a woman taken in marriage might not be a virgin. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, we see a situation where an innocent woman is no longer a virgin. Another scenario might be the woman taken prisoner and subsequently taken as a wife by her Hebrew captor, as seen in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 to 14. In both of those instances, we have the possibility that one might marry a woman who was not a virgin at marriage and become dissatisfied afterward because of the discovered uncleanness. In verses 5 through 22, we have some miscellaneous laws. Verse 5, When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he hath taken." No man shall take the nether or the upper millstone to pledge, for he taketh a man's life to pledge. If a man be found stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel, and maketh merchandise of him, or selleth him, then that thief shall die, and thou shalt put away evil from among you. Take heed in the plague of leprosy, that thou observe diligently, and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you, as I commanded them, so shall you observe to do. Remember what the Lord thy God did unto Miriam by the way, after that ye were come forth out of Egypt. When thou dost lend thy brother anything, thou shalt not go into his house to fetch his pledge. Thou shalt 
stand abroad, and the man to whom thou dost lend shall bring out the pledge abroad unto thee. And if the man be poor, thou shalt not sleep with his pledge. In any case, thou shalt deliver him the pledge again when the sun goeth down, that he may sleep in his own raiment, and bless thee, and it shall be righteousness unto thee before the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren, or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. At his day thou shalt give him his hire. Neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor, and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. The father shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest thy grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. So in this chapter we have some criminal laws and some civil laws as well. Verse 5 you draft exempt for a year after marriage to, as they say, cheer up your wife. So a quote from verse 5. You'll notice also in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 7, it says, And what man is there that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return into his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. In verse 6, we see that there's no taking one's survival tools as loan collateral. The millstone was made up of two stones. A really big stone is the base with a small stone of five pounds or so that fit one's hand for the purpose of grinding grain. A poor person depended upon this tool for his food. According to this scripture, this tool could not be taken as security for a loan. In verse 7, death to kidnappers for the purpose of selling them as slaves. Hey, isn't that how they ended up in Egyptian captivity in the first place after the brothers sold Joseph into slavery? Then verses 8 and 9 says, Keep the laws concerning leprosy, and remember Miriam's bout with it in Numbers chapter 12. If you want to find more about the law regarding leprosy, look at Leviticus chapter 13. We have some more issues of collateral for loans in verses 10 through 13. Collateral from a loan cannot be repossessed from the borrower's home. It's got to be brought out. If a poor man's basic cloak, which he uses as his night clothing, is used as collateral, it's got to be returned before nightfall. In verses 14 and 15, we see that the poor man must be paid his wages at the end of every day he works. And in verse 16, you can only be executed for your own sin, not the sin of a father or a child. In verses 17 and 18, the legal rights of the foreigner and the poor person must be protected. And in verses 19 through 22, we see that they were to leave something in the field after the harvest so that foreigners and poor people could have something to glean. While the Hebrews were the covenant people, in other words, their relationship with God, it's interesting to note the provisions made in the law of Moses for foreigners here. Notice verses 17, 18, 20, and 21. 
As a matter of fact, notice Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19, which says, Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. This generosity stopped short, however, of ever being king over the Israelites. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15, we see that only a Hebrew could be the king over the Israelites, had to be Hebrew-born. And also we see that a Hebrew could charge interest on a loan to a stranger, but not a fellow Hebrew in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 20. Another interesting provision for the foreigner living among the Hebrews was that he could be given certain foods to eat that were unclean to the Hebrews and forbidden. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21. But they could sell those or give those foods to the foreigner. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, we've got um, some scripture on beatings. Verse 1. If there be a controversy between men and they come into judgment, and the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face, according to his fault, by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him, and not exceed, lest, if he should exceed, and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. So we see in these three verses that a beaten has an upper limit of 40 wax. I guess that's some consolation. Rabbis in the first century decreed 39 stripes instead of 40. They wanted to make sure there was a, there was a margin of error there so as to not exceed the letter of the law in, the, in case maybe there was a miscount or something. The Apostle Paul was so beaten five times, according to his own words in 2 Corinthians 11:24, where he says, Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. In the case of these law-prescribed beatings, the judge was to oversee the beating, as the beat-e was to lie face down on the ground for his punishment. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, one verse about muzzling the ox, verse 4. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. Now, Paul makes reference to this verse when talking about preachers getting paid in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what he says. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is worthy of his reward. Paul also quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, when he says this. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Now in verses 5 through 10, we have the leveret law with regard to um, taking your brother's wife after his death. Let's look at verse 5. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise unto his brother a name in Israel." He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him, and if he stand to it, and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders, and loose his shoe from off his foot, 
and spit in his face, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, The house of him that hath his shoe loosed. In Israel, it was your family obligation after your brother's untimely death to take his wife and give her an opportunity to bear a child. So you refuse. Well, you better get ready for some public humiliation then in front of the whole city. The dead brother's name would be continued through the birth of the son conceived under this provision of the law. Now, this procedure was not new under Mosaic law. We first get a glimpse of this brotherly responsibility in Genesis chapter 38. That's with Judah and his first son, Er. We see then that this scenario played out between Ruth and Boaz in the book of Ruth. Some have sought to make this law socially compatible with contemporary standards by simply specifying that the obligation existed only when the brother had not previously married prior to his brother's death. However, there's no scriptural evidence to support this notion. In fact, providing an heir was the issue here. The widow needed an heir for her dead husband, and the remaining brother was obligated to provide that heir in his brother's name without regard to the one or more wives that he might already have. In Hebrew culture, marriages under these circumstances are known as leveret marriages. A property rights issue is also probably in view here. If a widow without children marries outside of her husband's clan, that portion of the family inheritance of land may end up in the hands of another clan. This leveret marriage ensures that the property stays where it was intended. Incidentally, the special circumstances of this law overrides the stipulations of Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16, and Leviticus 20 and 21. Both of those passages forbid one from marrying his brother's wife. Jesus touches on the provisions of this law when asked a question by the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33, which is paralleled by Mark 12, 18 to 27, and Luke 20, 27 to 40. In uh, verses 11 and 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 25, we see that wives better stay out of their husband's fight. Verse 11, when men strive together one with another, and the wife of the one draweth near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets, then thou shalt cut off her hand, thine eyes shall not pity her. Ouch! A wife can lose a hand by coming to the aid of her husband in a fight, unless she's very, very careful. Punch, kick, bite, scratch, do all those things if you want but she better be careful about the bodily location of her aggression. In verses 13 to 16, we have some uh, scripture regarding phony scales. Verse 13, Thou shalt not have in thy bag diverse weights, a great and a small. Thou shalt not have in thine house diverse measures, a great and a small. But thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Inaccurate scales, well, they're illegal. And it's illegal to cheat someone by deliberately, falsely weighing the product. Interesting that consumer protection laws even back then prevailed. 
Now, specifically, the guy that's the buyer, well, he might have pulled out a heavier weight to balance it on his scales against the product he was purchasing. That'd be getting more for his money. On the other hand, if he were selling, he might pull out the lesser weight against which he balanced the product, thus giving less product for the purchase price. Well, that was illegal under Mosaic law, and it's dealt with in this passage. And then we have some scriptures regarding Amalek in verses 17 through 19. Verse 17, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee when thou wast faint and weary. And he feared not God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven and shalt not forget it. All right, here we have the Amalekites. They hate us, and we're not crazy about them either. Remember when God judged Israel for refusing to go take Canaan after the return of the twelve spies in Numbers chapter 14? Well, they decided to try to reverse God's judgment by going against the Amalekites and the Canaan by their own might, and they were thoroughly whipped in battle in Numbers chapter 14, verses 39 to 45. However, the reference here looks back to their immediate exodus from Egypt when the Amalekites dogged them in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 13. That was Israel's first big battle, and they prevailed. But, but wait, that's still not enough. This revives under Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when he goes after the Amalekites, and he's motivated by this very command. According to the Jewish Study Bible, here's what it says. These verses are read liturgically on the Sabbath before Purim. Since, according to Jewish tradition, Haman, the evil protagonist of Esther, is an Amalekite. According to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 8, and Esther chapter 8, verse 3. Chapter 26 begins with the word about tithes and offerings. Verse 1. And it shall be when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possessest it, and dwellest therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth, which thou shalt bring of thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall put it in the basket, and shall go into the place where the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. And thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days, and say unto him, I profess this day unto the Lord thy God, that I am come into the country which the Lord sware unto our fathers for to give us. And the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few, and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked on our afflictions and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. And he hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought forth the first fruits of the land which thou, O Lord, hast given me. And thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God, and worship before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee, and unto thine house, thou and the Levite, and the stranger that is among you. 
When thou hast made an end of tithing all the tithes of thine increase the third year, which is the year of tithing, and hast given it unto the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat within thy gates and be filled, then thou shalt say before the Lord thy God, I have brought away the hallowed things out of mine house, and also have given them unto the Levite, and unto the stranger, to the fatherless, and to the widow, according to all thy commandments which thou hast commanded me. I have not transgressed thy commandments, neither have I forgotten them. I have not eaten thereof in my morning, neither have I taken away aught thereof for any unclean use, nor given aught thereof for the dead. But I have hearkened to the voice of the Lord my God, and have done according to all that thou hast commanded me. Look down from thy holy habitation from heaven, and bless thy people Israel, and the land which thou hast given us, as thou swearest unto our fathers, a land that floweth with milk and honey. Well, they weren't just to take their offerings and leave. In this passage, we see they had to recite to the officiating priest the history lesson of their people going all the way back to Jacob. The Aramean, or a.k.a. Syrian, verses 5 through 9. This all took place back at the location of the tabernacle. Every third year, the tithe was taken and given for the provisions of the poor and the Levites, in verse 12. Probably not taken to the central location of the tabernacle, but to a place designated by each tribe. There was a ritual saying that went with this offering as well. We see it in verses 13 through 15. And this offered a commitment to God and expressed thankfulness for his provisions. Again, notice that this was a mandatory tithe, which in effect was how the government provided for the needs of their government servants and for the poor. For more on this every third year tithe, look at my notes on Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 29. In verses 16 through 19, we get a final word on these statutes. Verse 16, This day the Lord thy God hath commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments. Thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and to hearken unto his voice. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, that thou shouldest keep all his commandments, and to make thee high above all nations which he hath made in praise and in name and in honor, and that thou mayest be an holy people unto the Lord thy God, as he hath spoken. Well, the second giving of the law is now complete. These four verses cap it off with an exhortation to adhere carefully to the stipulations of the covenant that the Lord has established with the Hebrews. The special status of the Hebrew people before God is once again stated in these verses. Now, in chapter 27, we see a setup for an awesome sight. Verse 1. And Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. And it shall be on the day when ye shall pass over Jordan into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set up thee great stones and plaster them with plaster. And thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law, when thou art passed over, that thou mayest go in into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land that floweth with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. Therefore it shall be, when ye be gone over Jordan, that ye shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount Ebal, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster. And there thou shalt build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones, and thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. And thou shalt offer peace offerings, and shalt eat there, and rejoice before the Lord thy God. 
and thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel, this day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God, and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people. When ye are come over Jordan, Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin, and these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse, Reuben, Gad, and Asher, and Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that perverteth the judgment of the stranger, fatherless and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his father's wife, because he uncovereth his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with any manner of beast, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that smiteth his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that taketh reward to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now, you remember where Mount Gerizim and Ebal are? I've provided a picture, actually, of the two mountains, Gerizim on the left, Ebal on the right, Shechem in the middle. And that's where this scene is going to take place, we're told here. We talked about this, first of all, back in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And that's with two million or so Hebrews shouting their acceptance of the cursings and blessings of the law. Now, here's some more specific instructions about how this event's going to unravel, which actually doesn't take place until we get over to Joshua chapter 8. Hey, be patient. It takes time to put together a 2,000 or rather 2 million voice choir. The actual event takes place in Joshua chapter 8, verses 29 to 35. It'll be an earth-shaking vocal experience. The advanced team will write all the words of this law, verse 3, upon stones on the other side of the Jordan before this big event. These two mountaintops are about one mile apart over on the Canaan side of the Jordan River. Half the Hebrew tribes will stand on Mount Ebal, that's Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali, and the other half, the other tribes, will stand on Mount Gerizim, that's Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. As the Levites will stand in the middle, they'll read all the curses, and the people on the mountains will cry, Amen. Verses 15 to 26 list those curses which are to be read at that big gathering that takes place when we get over to Joshua chapter 8. Now we'll see the reading of the blessings with additional curses when we get over to Deuteronomy chapter 28, the next chapter that we'll read as we're reading through the Old Testament. And we'll be reading that on the 16th. This concludes our podcast for today. 
I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.